0: do you ever feel sorry for Jesus it might seem like a strange question but it reminds me of of a mission trip that I went on in college to Spain and there was a a beautiful old cathedral right outside of the city and I have a a picture of it here this is in a small town outside of Barcelona beautiful building and we were able to go inside and it was just beautiful uh, in the interior as well but as you went inside, it didn't take long to, to realize that the, the thing that was everywhere decorating the interior were crucifixes. The, the artwork, there were big crosses hanging down from the ceiling. Most of them had pictures of Jesus still hanging on the cross. And the, the vibe in there, just the mood, was so serious, so somber. It was actually, to be honest, it was depressing in there. And really, the emphasis was so clearly on the suffering of Jesus. Yet, as we talked to people who visited the cathedral, as we talked to others in the small town, what was sad is that not a single person that we ran into had a basic understanding of why Jesus died. They didn't have a basic understanding of the gospel, which shows that it is all too easy to feel sorry for Jesus and to miss the point of his suffering completely. Of course, there's also the the other extreme, the opposite extreme, where people will scoff at Jesus' claims to be God when they see the humiliating way that he died. We're going to see both of those misdirected responses towards Jesus in today's passage that shifts from the trial that we've been studying to his execution. And the big question I want us to answer is how should we respond to Jesus' suffering? How should we respond to Jesus' suffering? To break down our passage we're going to look at it in two main points we're going to look at the weeping women and then we're going to look at the scoffing crowd so the weeping women and the scoffing crowd for our first main point remember the context of this passage within the past 12 hours or so jesus has been betrayed by judas abandoned by his closest followers he's been given a mock trial and condemned by the jewish leaders and then found totally innocent by pilate and herod that's what we've looked at the last two weeks, and yet despite the the innocence that Pilate and Herod attribute to Jesus, he was still brutally flogged before Herod finally washed his hands and gave in to the pressure of the crowds, and he handed Jesus over to be crucified. That's where we pick up our passage on the way to Jesus' execution. As they led him away, they seized Simon a Cyrenian who was coming in from the country and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. It was customary for those sentenced to execution to carry their own cross beam, which could weigh up to 100 pounds. And the fact that the soldiers ask another man to carry Jesus' cross, it hints at how severely Jesus had already been beaten. It hints at how much he'd already suffered. He was punched in the face repeatedly by the, the temple guards. He was flogged, which would have turned Jesus' back into basically raw meat. He was, mo- he was beaten again and had a crown of thorns put on his head by the, the Roman soldiers. And so Jesus, he must have appeared on the verge of death, even on his way, to be executed. This explains the mercy that the Roman soldiers extended Jesus by asking Simon to carry his cross. They simply wanted to, to make sure he lived long enough to be nailed to that same cross <laughs> to die instead of dying on the way. Now Luke is the only Gospel writer who includes the next powerful scene that begins in verse 27. A large, crowd of people following, there a large crowd of people following him, including women who are mourning and lamenting him. These women in verse 27, they don't appear to be his female disciples who are mentioned later on in the account and were primarily from Galilee. These were likely professional mourners that were very common in first century, first century Judea. And they may have included other women who were just sympathetic towards Jesus, who felt bad for the, the awful fate that he was approaching. The scene here is very intense. These women, they are, they are loudly wailing. They're publicly lamenting Jesus' impending death. But notice Jesus' response to their well-intentioned sympathy in verse 28. But turning to them, just imagine Jesus after all that he's suffered already, the flogging, the blood all over him, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Think about that statement with me for, for just a moment. In my experience just personally and in, in doing ministry to others, self-pity is such a dangerous sin to our spiritual health because it focuses our attention on our circumstances which causes us either to forget that God is in control of them, or it leads us to criticize God. Maybe not outwardly, but internally. We begin to complain about God. We begin to doubt his goodness because of those same circumstances. Now, if anyone in the history of the world was entitled to some self-pity, it would have been Jesus Christ. Jesus, he lived a 100% perfectly moral life, and yet he's been falsely accused, falsely condemned, He's being tortured and being led on his way to death. Now, what I want you to understand is that it's impossible to walk with faith in God's promises at the same time you're indulging self-pity. No matter how natural self-pity feels, no matter how justified it often feels, we have to learn to recognize it for what it is as believers. Self-pity is a complaint about God's will for our life. That's what it, we're, not, we're not content with God's will for our lives. And so we have to learn by the gospel, by the power of the gospel, we have to learn to put that to death. And Jesus is our example in all things as believers. And amazingly, even on the way to the cross, Jesus didn't indulge in self-pity. He wasn't focused on himself, but his concern was on others. And we can see that in his warning to the weeping women who represented in prophetic language all of God's people. This warning that Jesus gave to them it's no less urgent for each of us today and we see that warning in verses 29 through 31. look the days are coming when they will say blessed are the women without children the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed then they will begin to say to the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us for if they do these things when the wood is green what will happen when it's dry Jesus is predicting here the awful fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 A.D., and he predicted that judgment at least seven times during his ministry. That siege of Jerusalem by the Romans, it would be so horrific that barren women who were typically considered cursed in that society, they would be viewed as blessed. It was a total, total flip-flop of the Jewish culture and mindset. The historian Josephus, he confirms that this happened with his descriptions of the atrocities that took place during that event. The Romans, they surrounded the city, and so they basically let the people inside starve. There were mass starvations. People's bodies were just piled up in the streets. Those who tried to escape to find food, if they were caught, they were crucified, and so there were hundreds of Jews crucified around Jerusalem. I'm gonna share one one other really disturbing account just because it highlights the truth of what Jesus was saying. Josephus talks about there's even a mother who roasted her own child to eat her child because she was starving, and then she selfishly hid the rest of her child so that others couldn't have it. That's how horrible things got. Now, the reason I said this warning is still very relevant for us is because the fall of Jerusalem is a vivid preview of the final judgment coming when Christ returns, not to pay for our sins, as he did at the first appearing, but to punish all unrepentant sinners, to rid the universe forever of sin. In Jesus' warning to Jerusalem, he quotes Hosea 10.4, where Israel's godless priests, they would rather have the mountains fall on them than face God's judgment. And the apostle John, he references that prophecy as well in Revelation 6, where every unbeliever in the world is terrified of Christ's return. Listen to this passage. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person, he's just saying, all walks of life, all of humanity, all people, He says, they hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, and they said to the mountains and the rocks, "Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, because the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand." Jesus' point here, as he talks about, begging the mountains to fall on people. People asking for that, His point is that it is, it is far less intimidating to face physical death than it is to face the wrath of God. It'd be far better just to have your life extinguished, to just die, than it would be to stand before the wrath of God in your sin. That's why Jesus said in Luke 12, don't fear those who can kill the body. And then after that, they can do nothing more. He said, no, the one you should fear is the one who has authority to sentence you to hell after death. Jesus knew that's what each one of us deserves, which is why he urged the women not to cry for him, but for themselves. That brings us to a, a powerful reality, and that is that Jesus doesn't want your sympathy. He wants your salvation. Jesus does not want your sympathy. He wants your salvation. He doesn't want us to pity him. He wants us to repent and believe in him. And We should guard against superficial sympathy for Jesus, and that's particularly easy to whip up at Easter time as we recall the excruciating torture that Jesus went through to purchase our forgiveness. Now, it's completely appropriate at times to weep because of our sin, to feel broken because of our sin as believers. It's appropriate at times to, to weep and be overwhelmed thinking about Christ's love that he displayed in what he was willing to suffer for us. That's appropriate. But what's never appropriate is to merely feel sorry for Jesus. To just feel bad for him. And do you know why? The reason that's inappropriate is because Jesus suffered voluntarily. Every single thing that he went through and suffered, he chose ahead of time to endure that. John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. No one could hurt Jesus. No no one could kill Jesus. All the armies in the world combined all the powers of the universe, even all the powers of hell and the demonic, if they were all aligned, attacking Christ, he wouldn't be threatened at all because Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. He suffered voluntarily. The reason that it's not appropriate to merely feel sorry for Jesus, the reason that can even become almost offensive, is when you let me just give you an illustration to help you think about this. Imagine a mother who went through a really difficult delivery, a really difficult childbirth. And my wife and I, we have five kids and we've been blessed. Most of those have been pretty smooth, but there was one of our kids that was a little bit tricky. There's one that was by far the most painful, by far the most intense in terms of the delivery. The doctor actually at one point he was really worried about Agatha and so he's asking me for permission to do a surgery and Agatha doesn't want it she's like no and he's like if it's my daughter you would do it and like, I felt it was almost as traumatic for me <laughs> as for my wife in that moment and I want to show you a picture that it was not not fun a lot of a lot of intensity a lot of emotions but I want to show you a picture just a few moments after that now imagine Someone coming and just saying to Agatha, I feel so bad that you had to go through that. I wish you never had to go through that pain. If someone just puts the emphasis on the pain, pretty soon my wife's going to be like, you don't get it. I chose to go through that. And I would go through that again because if I had to, to get my my precious child. Jesus doesn't want your sympathy. He wants your salvation And if you're a Christian, he wants your sanctification. He wants to take you deeper into a relationship with him. Now, a prerequisite to genuine salvation is real repentance before God. So what does true repentance look like? Well, we're going to get a very good case study of both what it doesn't look like to repent and then what it does in our next main point, which is the scoffing crowd. Let's pick up the account again in verse 32. Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there um, along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Luke emphasizes that, that these men were criminals, which confirms the prophecy, which was made in Isaiah 53 about the Messiah, that he would be counted among the lawless. Jesus was, of course, not a criminal, but he was crucified in the middle of two thieves, as evidence that he came to die for lawbreakers like you and me. These men are commonly referred to as thieves, but the actual Greek word in Matthew and Mark suggests that they weren't just pickpockets, but that they were actually violent criminals, that they had committed assault. And so these were the type of men that Jesus was crucified next to. We'll circle back to focus on the, the criminals soon, but first I want you to notice what is said to Jesus on the cross, and then what Jesus says from the cross. I want you to see this contrast. Verses 35-39, through it says the people stood watching and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others, let him save himself if this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An An inscription was above him, this is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. In this scene, we see that Jesus, is mocked to his face from virtually every single angle. And the Jewish crowds did it, the the large crowds that gathered to watch Jesus be crucified, they, they were mocking him. The religious leaders who'd been accusing Jesus all day long, they were, of course, there to mock Jesus too. And ironically, they used his divine titles of Messiah and the chosen one to do it. Even the sign above Jesus that said, the King of the Jews, that testified in God's sovereignty to the fact that Jesus was crucified for claiming to be who he actually was. Now, it wasn't just the Jews that scoffed at Jesus. Verses 36 through 37 show that the Gentile Roman soldiers joined in the cruel sport. They offered him sour wine, and then they taunted him, essentially saying, If you really are a king, then show us your power. Show us your power. Come down off the cross. According to Matthew's gospel, not only one, but both of the criminals joined in with the crowd to ridicule, ridicule Jesus as well. Matthew 27, 44, in the same way, even the criminals, plural, note that, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. Jesus was being disrespected and mocked from, again, every angle you can imagine. And I want you to try and connect with this by asking yourself, have you ever been mocked? especially publicly mocked. Have you ever had someone just intentionally try to disrespect you? you know, I've been blessed. I haven't gone through much of that in my life, nothing even close, obviously, to what Jesus went through, but I, I have been mocked publicly before. And one of the first uh, examples that pops to my mind is from my basketball days. I shot a, an air ball or two in my career. And so I've had a whole stadium chanting, air ball, <laughs> air ball. And, and that's pretty embarrassing. It's, it's kind of like Snickers. You, know, you want to get away. Like in those moments, you just kind of want to dis, disappear. So that, that's embarrassing. But let me share something that was much more infuriating to me when playing basketball. What was much more upsetting is when people would talk trash to me or to my teammates during the game. You know, in my flesh, I, I hate it when people deliberately try to disrespect me. I get that we all step on each other's toes accidentally, but when someone's like, "Just, I want to make you feel like you're worthless, there's something in me that it just, it just stir, it stirs it up. And it, it actually reminds me, this idea of, of trash-talking it and what it, what it produces in people, it reminds me of the great legend Larry Bird. Larry legend. I don't know if you guys knew this, but part of the legend of Larry Bird is that he was a legendary trash talker. He would just talk trash to anybody. And when you talk trash, there's usually a high correlation that it doesn't stay with words. It usually usually becomes physical. And so this is him getting punched in the face by Bill Lambeer. Here is uh, Larry in a headlock (laughs) fighting with Charles Barkley. There's many more pictures. I'll just show you one more. This is him just face to face with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which I think it's always a bad idea to fight someone whose wingspan is like a 747, <laughs> but Larry Bird, he, he was crazy. He was crazy. He would talk trash, and he would even tell the other team the play that they were going to run. And he'd say, hey, this is what we're going to do, and I'm telling you because you still can't stop me. <laughs> now, the, the reason I share that with you and show you the pictures of the fights, it's not to, it's not to promote <laughs> talking trash here, but the reason is to show that when that happens, when someone mocks you. It doesn't naturally draw out compassion of us, does it? It naturally draws out the exact opposite. But Jesus, he is so different from us. While people said the most cruel and irreverent words to Jesus on the cross, contemplate the words that Jesus said to them. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know they're doing. Father, forgive them. This is the first of Jesus' statements on the cross, and he appears to have spoken it while the soldiers were in the process of nailing him to the cross and hoisting him up before the hostile crowd. The physical pain that roared through Jesus' severed nerves in that moment, it it's hard for us to even begin to imagine. But on top of that, it's impossible for us to relate to the spiritual agony and weight that Jesus felt as he was lifted up on the cross to pay for our sins. One commentator put it this way, it was just then that Jesus prayed forgiveness for his enemies just when the nails were piercing and the cross was thrusting into the ground. As soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, said J.C. Ryle, the great high priest began to intercede. I love that quote. As soon as the blood of the great sacrifice began to flow, the great high priest began to intercede. As Jesus' focus was not on his own suffering but on the coming suffering of the weeping women as he made his way to the cross, we see that even while he was nailed to the cross, his intention was not bent inward, selfishly, but it was lovingly directed outward at the needs of others even to those who were murdering him. While the crowds cried, crucify him to the Romans, Jesus cried out, forgive them to his father. This is not mere human patience and love that Jesus displays on the cross. All of us can imagine what it'd be like to be 10 times more patient than we are right now, can't we? At least for me, that wouldn't be very hard to imagine. To be able to to bear greater stress or mistreatment or frustration, we can imagine being more, more patient than we are now, but Jesus' prayer on the cross, it's on a different level. You know, it's a divine patient that is impossible for, ha- for fallen human beings to replicate on our own. This prayer, it, it's a, a snapshot for us. It, it gives us an incredible glimpse at God's gracious heart, at the, the heart behind the crucifixion. This prayer, it proves that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, he wants to save sinners like us. If Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of the very men who nailed him to the cross, then no matter what you've done, no matter what we've done, we can be confident that Christ will accept any who seek salvation through his perfect sacrifice. That prayer to the Father, it was beautifully answered, the prayer for the Father to forgive his enemies. It was answered just hours later in a beautiful way when the Roman centurion in charge of executing Jesus confessed Jesus as righteous and gave glory to God after watching him die. God the Father has been answering Jesus' prayer on the cross all throughout history. And I read one dramatic example of that recently in the story of Jacob Deshazer. Deshazer became a POW after his plane was shot down over Japan in World War II, and he spent three years in prison where he was tortured often and spent 34 out of 40 months in solitary confinement. He was not a Christian, but while in prison, he eventually gained access to a Bible, which he read cover to cover multiple times, memorizing large portions of it, including Jesus' command to love our enemies, which he realized applied to the Japanese, who he had grown to hate. On June 8, 1944, DeShazzar finally turned to God and asked for forgiveness. He turned to Christ, and even in prison, he experienced the joy of salvation that began to change his life. And the guards that he had despised, he began to pray for and to treat kindly to try and show respect to. When the war was over and Deshazzar was released, he felt the Lord calling him to go back to Japan to be a missionary. And so his story was turned into a track called I Was a Prisoner of Japan, and a million were made and they were distributed all over Japan. And many people, they heard the gospel for the first time through those tracks. Incredibly, one of the, man who, one of the men who saw the tracks was Fishu Mukaida. And he was the one who had led the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. So he, was the, he was the one who had called for the attack, led the Japanese into their attack that killed 2,400 uh, Americans. This man, he saw a track at the train station and he was going to ignore it until he realized it was written by an American pilot. And DeShazer's story, it moved him so much that after reading the track, he found a Bible and began to study it. And as he did... Guess what verse God used to transform his life and give him confidence of Christ's love for him? Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't that story amazing? I have a picture here. This is those two men right before uh, Phukhida's baptism. And what I want you to to understand is that Jesus' prayer on the cross 2,000 years ago, it's precious evidence of his heart to save sinners still today. Now, in light of Jesus' prayer for forgiveness, is everyone going to be saved? Will everyone be forgiven? No, not everyone will be saved. And one of the emphasis of Luke is the necessity of true repentance for all who come to saving faith in Christ. And what Luke does in the rest of this passage is he gives us two different responses to Jesus. One is an example of unrepentance. Now, there's many different expressions of unrepentance towards Christ, but we see the heart of, of unrepentance in one of the thieves, and then the, the example of repentance in the other one. Listening again to, to verse 38, it says, then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This first criminal, he didn't fear God, he didn't admit his obvious guilt, he didn't confess his Jesus as the king or as the Messiah, but instead, much like Satan had tested Jesus in the wilderness, he said, prove it. If you're the Messiah, Jesus, then save yourself and save me. It's sobering to me to to think think that this man, he did ask Jesus to save him. Have you ever thought about that before? He asked Jesus to save him. More accurately, he actually demanded temporary salvation from Jesus on his own terms. He demanded salvation on his own terms. He wanted Jesus to save him, but he wanted it his way. He wanted to be set free from the consequences of his sin, but not the control of sin. He wanted a quick fix and not an eternal king. This has been the condition of sinful human hearts ever since Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit in the garden. See, the the problem with human beings, the problem with us as sinners, is not that we deny the existence of God. Sometimes people do, but that's not the problem. The problem is that we deny his right to be king over our life and to tell us how to live. True repentance, it recognizes that our deepest problem is not just our behavior, it's actually our heart. The problem is that is at the core of our being. One commentator, he described it this way. He, the unrepentant thief, was prepared to believe that Jesus was the Messiah if he would do a miracle and release him from the temporal punishment that was the consequence of his crimes. When Jesus made no attempt to do that, he cursed him and his religion as a cheat. But to save people simply from the temporal consequences of their sins, without first bringing them to repentance and reconciliation with God, would be no true salvation at all. It would but encourage people to repeat their sins under the impression that any ugly or inconvenient consequences could and would be miraculously removed. No paradise could be built on such an irresponsible attitude to sin." That's true. That's true. The thief is an example for us of an unrepentant response to Christ's suffering. Now obviously not everyone is is that vocal, not everyone is that aggressive towards Christ, but not admitting sin, not recognizing Christ as king. Those are essential aspects of unrepentance towards Christ. And in stark contrast to that, look at the example of the other criminal next to Christ. And don't forget, this man, he started off initially mocking Christ, scoffing at Christ at, um, on the cross. We don't know what specifically changed this criminal's mind and heart. It might have been the shocking words that Jesus spoke. It might have been the compassion that he showed this man and the others who were, who were berating him. Whatever the catalyst was, though, this criminal, he was truly repentant. He came into a saving relationship with Christ at the very moment in time when Christ was dying for his sins. It's wild to me. This man entered the kingdom at the moment where Christ is dying to open the doors for all of us. Listen to the thief confess Christ before the other hostile criminal in the crowds. This is verses 40 through 42. But the other answered rebuking him, don't you even fear God, since you're undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting what we deserve for the things we did, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he, said to Jesus, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The repentant criminal, he came to fear God, and he openly admitted his own guilt. This is the first step towards true repentance. It's to acknowledge that we are guilty and that we fully deserve God's judgment. When our souls own their guilt before God, then they're in a position to to turn to Christ for salvation. That's exactly what this criminal did, acknowledging that Jesus was not only innocent, but also that he was a king or the Messiah. He implies this when he recognizes that Jesus had a kingdom. Then on top of that, rather than demanding temporary salvation like the hardened criminal, this man, he humbly asked Jesus for eternal salvation. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There were no demands. There's no telling Jesus what to do. He came like Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. He came poor in spirit, saying, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? No temporary blessings are asked for here. What this man wanted the most was to be a part of Jesus' kingdom in the life to come. And a question for you is which criminal's response describes the posture of your heart towards King Jesus. You have unrepentance and repentance right next to Jesus, side by side around Jesus. Do you fear God and recognize that your sin deserves judgment in hell? Do you recognize that you deserve eternal judgment? Do you want a relationship with God? Do you want him to rule your life, or do you just want him to fix all of your problems and let you maintain rule? Many preachers have pointed out that one of the criminals crucified by Jesus repented, which offers every sinner the hope of forgiveness. But the other criminal rejected Christ, which should be a warning to everyone who feels entitled before God. One thief angrily demanded Jesus save him from human death. The other humbly asked Jesus to save him eternally. And for all who repent and trust in Christ, Jesus' final statement in this passage might be the most glorious of them all. Verse 43 And he said to them, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's a world of wonder in this one verse. Notice that that Jesus, he gives divine certainty with his words, truly, I tell you. And he gives this to a violent criminal who just moments before had been mocking him to his face. He also gives this man immediate and eternal hope by promising, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Not in a thousand years. Not when Christ returns and the dead are raised. Today you will be with me. Christians don't believe in soul sleep. We don't die and remain unconscious unconscious until the return of Christ. Instead, when you die, you go straight into the conscious presence of the Lord as a believer. And Paul, he affirms this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And and this is for believers who are facing death or for those of us who have lost loved ones who are believers, this is such a comfort to know that the moment that you die, your last moment here, you transition right into the presence of the Lord. Right into the presence of Christ. And it's the personal presence of Christ that's the most glorious aspect of this promise. Have you caught this before? Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me. The godly Puritans used to say that Jesus, he's the very heaven of heaven. Jesus is the heaven of heaven because nothing compares to the all-surpassing value of knowing him. The biblical description of heaven is not a disembodied state, but a real physical universe and kingdom perfectly renewed by God. It it will be incredible. It, It is going to be glorious. But as wonderful as our eternal home will be, the emphasis On scripture, it's not on the place that we're going to spend eternity, but it's on the person that we're going to spend it with, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the emphasis is. He's the all-powerful King of kings and Lord of lords who died on the cross in our place so we could be forgiven and we could enjoy paradise with him forever. Philip Ryken, I love how he points out the undeniable proof that this repentant criminal is of the grace of God and salvation. What we have in this criminal is an obviously guilty man that couldn't do any good works even if he wanted to because his hands and feet, they were literally nailed in place, they were nailed to a cross. He was not saved by faith plus good works. He was saved by faith alone and grace alone in Jesus Christ. And that faith in Christ, it changed his heart. It changed him from a scoffing sinner someone who humbly worshiped Jesus Christ. This man, he was saved by grace alone, and that is our only hope as well. If you've never admitted that you're a condemned sinner before God, if you've never humbly asked him to forgive you like the repentant thief, then I hope you'll do that today. I hope you'll do that today and submit your heart and your life to Jesus as Savior and as King. For all of you who who know the Lord already, let me share just one application for you as we close. Praise Jesus, don't pity him. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ, don't pity him. All praise and glory and honor belong to Christ and it's precisely because of his awesome power as creator along with his awesome love as our savior who died for us that inspires our worship of him. What Jesus suffered was horrible beyond what we can fully comprehend and we're actually gonna look more at that this Friday, at our Good Friday service. But we know that everything he suffered, he suffered voluntarily for the glory of the Father and for our salvation. And so instead of feeling bad for Jesus this Easter, my prayer for us as a church is that we would grow in our hatred for sin. We wouldn't just feel bad for Jesus, we'd grow in hating our sin and we'd grow in our gratitude for the grace of God. We'd be more amazed at what he did to save us and his love for us and become more confident of his heart. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the cross. Thank you that no one took your life from you, but you laid it down willingly. Lord, I I pray that we wouldn't just feel bad for you. Lord, help us to recognize that that you did that because you love us. You did that because you desired to be in a relationship with us. And I, I pray that that would stir our affections for you like never before. God, I I pray even, Lord, for just our relationships with others, for our family, our our neighbors, our friends. I pray that Jesus' example would make us ones who are so quick to forgive. God, protect us from bitterness, protect us from division, but help us to see the, the poison, Lord, that unforgiveness is and how completely incompatible it is for people who have been forgiven so much by you. God, would you pray for Easter that you would just use this time to to grow our faith in you, to grow our love for you. And we do pray, God, that you would just work through our church, you work through every gospel preaching church this coming Sunday to see many more people, God, come, come to hear the gospel and respond to it. So we thank you for this time. Again, we just trust you to, to apply these truths to each one of our hearts. Amen.